Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it. Appealing with feeling and meat in it. Sing me a song with social significance. Or you can sing till you're blue. Let meaning shine from every line or I won't love you. That was from a revival of a 1937 hit musical review, Pins and Needles, performed by rank-and-file members of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Pins and Needles was Broadway's longest-running show until Oklahoma. Sing Me a Song with Social Significance describes the conversation you're about to hear. We recently gathered on a stage at Watkinson School in Hartford to talk about whether a song can change the world. With me, you'll hear folk singer Lara Herskovich, rapper and hip-hop educator Kaim, a.k.a. Self-Suffice the Rap Poet, and Neely Bruce, a composer on the faculty of Wesleyan, which I enjoy mispronouncing. Let's hear what was said and sung. You know, I was doing some research for the show, and I discovered um, a musical review that was done in the 1930s called Pins and Needles. It was a Broadway review done in 1937. It was written, sponsored, and performed by the International Garment Workers Union. It contained this one terrific song called Sing Me a Song with Social Significance. One of the bridges is Sing Me of Wars and Sing Me of Breadlines. Tell Me of Front Page News. Sing Me of Strikes and Last-Minute Headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. And that's really what we're talking tonight about tonight, is singing songs of social significance. And they can go in almost any direction, whether it's Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit or the Algerian rye music, so potent it was forbidden by the government, to the wolf tones in Ireland, to rage against the machine, who are usually raging against the machine, to the music of Native American activists, to the angry songs uh, that back the Arab Spring. You pick a time and a place, and there's activist music that goes with it. Uh, Not all of it is music that we're entirely comfortable with, too. I mean, there's an entire area of music of punk and hardcore metal music that's devoted to white supremacy and a lot of very angry exclusionist messages that we're not that comfortable with, maybe. But it's there, too. That's their version of music with social change. So, you know, if we had the official freshly squeezed neuroscientist, who is Sarah Raskin, here with us tonight, and I wish we did, she would tell us that music lights up different areas of the brain than speech, than reason, than reading. In other words... There's some overlap, obviously, but when you communicate musically, you're actually reaching other centers uh, of our neural network. And, you know, you were saying before 
that music can kind of get people to do stuff or, or get people to put themselves in, in difficult positions. That's sort of something that you believe that you really, in some ways, are literally reaching a different part of a person musically uh, if you want to spur them on to, to some new consciousness or action? Absolutely. From my, I'm not a, you know, I'm not her. Right. But I do know a little bit about how the brain works. And apparently we spend a lot of our mental energy censoring ourselves. We spend a lot of our mental energy worrying about things. When you see people just like we are now, quietly sitting, politely civilized, part of the reason is because there's all these things telling us not to offend the person next to us and do they like what I'm wearing and all these types of things. So I do think that our words and our music inspire a change, but I actually think what they do is they kind of tune down all of the other mental activity, a lot of which is like not really useful to peace and community with people. And it kind of knocks down those barriers that we've constructed. And just so this doesn't sound too theoretical, I was doing a workshop with a bunch of little kids yesterday, and they just run around, around each other, into each other, through each other. They don't have all these barriers, you know? Does anybody know what I mean? Anybody? Everybody knows what you mean. They don't have these barriers. So... I think we actually put a lot of our mental energy into creating barriers. Even right here, we have Hartford, West Hartford, East Hartford, New Hartford. It's always funny me to just think about these separations. And I think with music, we just kind of let the osmosis happen between the barriers. And when that happens, maybe I'm naive, but I do think somewhat naturally, these inspired actions people take are more like just being ourselves. Yeah, Lara, just go ahead and react to that however you want to. I, I think it's great. I'm also not a clinical psychologist, um, <laughs> nor ever will be. But I think there's something, at least that I experience, and that I know people who I work with and engage in music with, audience and performers alike, I think there's something also about it that creates a sense of safety. There's something about music that can connect so profoundly the mind with the heart, with the spirit, like, I don't go to church or temple or mosque in any kind of formal way, and I always say that music is my church, and I really feel that way, mm -hmm. that, you know, when we're all present in a musical performance and singing along, and that it really is that shared kind of communion. And, you know, there are lots of psychological and physiological reasons for that, which I wouldn't be able to tell you what they are, but mm -hmm. I experience it almost every single time that I play. And thinking about music as it has, as it, as it led the, helped to accompany the civil rights movement. I think that was part of it. There's, you know, we carry around, and especially, I mean, right now, you right, you turn on any television, read any newspaper, there's another spike of, of fear right now. And music saves my life every day. And part of why is because it helps me know that I'm connected to everyone else uh, around me. Of course, you know, Neely, the flip side of that, I think, is sometimes music, because, in fact, it, it speaks to different centers of our brain, brains, sometimes less linguistic, centers of our brains, you can get people to sing almost anything, and they don't even necessarily know what they're singing or believe what they're singing. Um, uh, I have a great example of okay. that. Some of you may know uh, Rob Rosenthal, my, uh, my colleague at Wesleyan, and Rob and his son were, were driving down the highway, and this was back in the day 
when uh, talking heads were very, very popular. And he was singing, they were singing together, father and son, psycho killer, qu'est-ce que c'est? <laughs> and, and at a certain time, both father and son kind of looked at each other and said, what are we singing? What are we singing? We don't necessarily make the connection, but just so people know, they're making tremendous, tremendous advances all the time about music and the neurology of the brain. But one thing that I think is very useful to know is that every pitch uh, has its own pathway through the neurons in your brain. It's a unique pathway. So when you hear that, uh, you are hearing something that is for that part of the brain only. So if you're hearing a complex piece of music with lots of notes, you're getting a brain massage. But if you're hearing a piece with a drone, which every culture has music with drones, people like drones, They're med- they put you in a meditative state or they energize you in certain ways, what you're really hearing is that part of the brain being massaged by that drone. So next time you hear something that's long, like minimalist music and so on, don't think it's boring. Don't think it's a waste of your time. Your brain is getting much needed massage. All right, we're going to massage your brains right now. Lara is going to get up uh, and perform. We'll hear, you'll be hearing music from all of them over the course of the evening, but she's the one with the guitar, so she has to go first. So as I said before, my most recent CD is all about the overcriminalization of America. And you all might know this because you're smart NPR listeners. But America is pretty small population-wise. We have five, about 5% of the world's population. We have a full 25% of the world's prisoners in this country. About one in 100 of us is locked up right now. I wrote this song. It was inspired by some fantastic graffiti art down in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was observing it, thinking, you know, it's hard enough in the world to believe in yourself and speak your truth. But I pictured someone coming out of prison, and of course, most of us who go in come back out, 95% or so. And how much harder it would be after having experienced that kind of environment to believe in yourself. They knew you by a number six digits long. Never imagined you'd have to be so strong. Counted the hours till you could leave the place. All they ever noticed were your mistakes. Something written on a building you tried to see. No one ever told you was a possibility. And painted on the overpass You prayed it told the truth This is what it looks like When someone believes in you It said you It said you
all around you had their say But you get to raise yourself at the end of the day So packed up your courage and left the rest You started walking and hoping for the best And like a flower through the pavement you found your way to free staring at the sidewalk you finally agree with all this graffiti and what it guarantees you thank some stranger for helping you to see that you that you like where you've been what you do where you live who you love or who you pray to what you know what you show and what you try to hide look inside look inside look inside of you cause you You are beautiful. You are beautiful. You are. Lara Herskovich. So we're going to take a little break uh, and we'll be right back. Thank you. We're live right now from Watkinson School. All right. Well, you know, Neely, there's all kinds of risks. And in the world of the more serious composer or formal composer or concert-oriented composer, however you want to express that, you know, we've seen Copeland clash with Joe McCarthy. We've seen Leonard Bernstein pay a pretty big price for his uh, espousal of the aims of the Black Panthers. And one senses, and some of his later biographies talk about the fact, he really ultimately had to dial back a little bit who he was if he wanted to survive at the Philharmonic, if he wanted to keep his lucrative Columbia recordings contract. It was like, well, yeah, yeah, but then don't be so out there. I mean, America's a pretty safe place to express yourself, except when it's not. Herbert Bruin, to get back to him, he, his solution to this was to have a career that was completely off the map. In other words, he never had to make the choice of pulling back from espousing the Black Panthers because it didn't matter if he espoused the Black Panthers. He had nothing to lose by doing that except his job at the University of Illinois, which he knew perfectly well he wasn't going to lose. So there's a tremendous problem uh, of of what you lose and what you gain in, in this. But I would like to point out both of my colleagues on this panel started off their statements talking about incarceration. One of them trying to keep juveniles out of prison and one of them talking about relatives in prison and close people, you know, in prison and so on. And then there are these really frightening statistics about prisons. But, but at one time in my life, I was, I was very involved in going with an orchestra, which is a Dutch orchestra, the Richardi Ensemble. And they uh, were a youth orchestra that played on the street, but they also would play anywhere else and they would play in prisons. 
and I had several experiences with them in prison, and they talked, told me a whole lot more about other things where I, they had been on tour. They had gone to prisons uh, in Spain and other parts of Europe, well, which where they had some unusual and bad experiences. I had the great privilege of helping them make their first and to date only American tour. And one of the places we went, I'll tell you two quick anecdotes about this. This is a panel about can a song change the world. One of the places that they wanted to go, they wanted to go to prison. And the prisons would not let them go anywhere except the women's prison in Niantic, Hmm. uh, which was quite open to the idea. And so this Dutch orchestra, which is, you know, people in their late teens and 20s for the most part, came uh, with me and they were coming. And this is women's prison. And it was as if sunshine had broken into the place. I mean, in the first place, everybody was young. Everybody was relatively idealistic. All the women, to a person, were flirting with all the boys in the band. It was really an astonishing thing. They would get up and they'd dance, and they'd sort of dance around in between the orchestra's uh, members and so on and so forth. And they, they were enthusiastic. and so on. It all lasted like 30 minutes at the most. But it was just a little bit of a ray of light uh, that really changed these women's lives. Now, who knows what the effect is and how permanent it is and so on. But if you ever have a chance to support arts in the prison system, This is a program that we have in Connecticut, and not all states are so enlightened, but it's constantly in danger. It's constantly being cut back one way, but it resurfaces in one way or another. But the arts in prison are tremendously, tremendously important. I'll tell you another thing. My most recent experience of this, uh, which is probably seven, maybe eight years ago, there is a ward at Connecticut Valley Hospital for the criminally insane. And everyone, this is the highest security place I have ever been in. You go through like four checkpoints, and it's basically underground. Uh, And finally you get, and your audience is all murderers. And they're crazy murderers. And they're not crazy in the sense that we take that. They're literally insane. They're the criminally insane, but they are hardcore criminally insane murderers. And I'm there with uh, Susan Matecki and Willie Fuhrer, who are two dancers, and I am playing some sort of ragtime stuff and also some sort of avant-garde stuff, and they dance a little bit. And also with me is a pianist from Argentina named Walter Frank, who was a Wesleyan graduate student at the time, and he plays some tango music for them, and they do tangos, and, and he plays some Argentine pop music. It was the opposite of the experience at the women's. They sat in stony silence, and there was a row of people, you know, all these murderers and, and you know, guards around and everything, to con- basically to prevent interaction. But we were allowed to talk a little bit. There was a little bit of a question and answer period. So it was very clear that some sort of a connection was being made even in that situation. Mm-hmm. It was not simply people sitting in stony silence. There was something going on in the mind. There was some communication that went on. Again, if you get a chance not only support arts in the prisons, but support arts for the mentally ill. Tremendously important. Hmm. I also, can I come back to your original the, question, Colin, about like the risks about of being a, an artist who chooses to express oneself politically? Yeah, and I want to get specific with you, too, but I, keep your thought, because I want you to say that, too. But, I mean, Kaim and I were talking about this uh, up, up there a few hours ago, that, you know, you sort of think that, 
there's quite a bit of freedom in this country. Uh, but then you watch what the Dixie Chicks went through in 2003, where, in fact, you know, there were radio stations that were bulldozing piles of their CDs. I mean, and this is all because they spoke out against the war in Iraq. Um, and they spoke out forcefully, and they spoke out, spoke out on British soil, which may have stirred people up even more. But it just sort of turned out that that whole shut up and sing, which turned out to be the, the slogan that they even kind of made fun of, that was the reaction in a country where we sort of think we have a lot of room to maneuver. So, yeah, go and, ahead. And some of that, I think depends on who who your audience is like they were going for a very mainstream country audience that didn't didn't necessarily want to engage politically in in that way anyway or at least maybe well I won't, I won't go there but it's possible that their audience was more conservative than the viewpoint that they were they were talking about in that moment but i was going to say that you know we'd really be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that if we didn't understand that not everybody in, in the country or the world wants to hear social justice-focused folk music. And, you know, same would be true for hip-hop and same would be true for any genre, right? So part of, you know, my maturing as an artist has been to come to peace with the fact that, like, I'm not going to be Taylor Swift. And that's okay. That, you know, we all sort of make... And I, and I don't get me wrong. I, I, I love her music. I think she's really talented. It's a, nothing against, like I said pop music and, and so on, but I think it is a reality of what we do. And the, the, the irony, I, when I made a decision, social justice music and lyrics has always, always been a part of what I've done, but it probably represents no more than 50% of any of my prior CDs. This time I decided, like, no, I'm going to do a concept album. I was inspired by Michael Franti and Spearhead's mm-hmm. album Stay Human. And I thought, well, gosh, he, you know, he did this incredible art, artistry around anti-death penalty. And I thought, well, if he can do that, then I can certainly do something in folk music around um, you know, over-incarceration and issues that are, that are connected to that, thinking this is going to be the worst business decision of my music career, which sometimes can feel like an oxymoron in folk music. I think, like, American <laughs> folk music represents, like, one half of one percent of the music in America right now. But we're, we're aiming for three-quarters of a percent. I mean, we're going we're gonna to get there. I want to take this out of abstraction again for uh, another moment because uh, you're sitting up here and you've only met one of these three people musically. So we're going to play uh, something, uh, one of Self Suffice's pieces. I forget which, which one. What do we have up there in the system? What are we about to play? It's called Not Surprised. Um, I think it's relevant to what's going on right now in the news. And um, it's perfect for this event tonight because it's ironic. And um, one of the things I've learned to do, the way I mitigate that circumstance, is I say simple things that actually... Are deeper. I've learned to say my complex things, so I would not be introducing like this anywhere, <laughs> anywhere else. But I've learned to hopefully say things in a simple way, and then once people are into the music and enjoying it, they get to go a little bit deeper. So, although the chorus is, I'll point to you, the chorus is not surprised. Although I like you guys to say that, the irony is I want you to realize that we shouldn't be saying not surprised as much as we do. All right. Event resources. Take it away. Did you hear what they said? This is Gil Scott Heron, by the way. Did you hear what they said? Did you hear what they said? They said another brother's dead. They said he's dead. But he can't be buried. Oh, they said he's dead. 
time we feel like we're not alive. When we get shot up, locked up, hospitalized. You know the worst part is when they say another one of them, huh? I'm not surprised. Sometimes we feel like we're not alive. When we get shot up, locked up, hospitalized. You know the worst part is when they say another one of them, huh? I'm not surprised. Money on my mind like a price on my head. Dollar signs in your eyes picturing me dead. President Salia to the penitentiary. Somebody's bank notes, a quote from your prison sentence. Waiting on rehabilitation, getting locked for the century. Visitation for your children, hope you get to see. Your mind is infinite, unconfined by the prison bricks. Just don't forget your memories and dreams can set you free. Money on my mind like a price on my head. Dollar signs in your eyes, picturing me dead. Presidents are frozen green with no soul between them. But folks fiending and squeezing more than people is breathing. Even those that's close to me hold their wallets closer, it's seeming. Without those greenbacks, my dreams people won't believe in. This love is infinite, no conditions or limits. But quick to forget when you feed them on whose shoulder they was leaning.
So if you did, if you did that whole, I'm not surprised thing, you can now go home and say to your children, I rap tonight. <laughs> no, really, I did. In some ways, hip-hop strikes me as intrinsically political and intrinsically message-oriented. And maybe it's because of some of the early hip-hop and then even running through to Public Enemy, which, I mean, just couldn't have been more so. And then in other ways, it feels as though you'd be struggling against the same thing I was talking about before. Well, if you're political, that means, you know, you're not gangsta, you're not something else, you're not... Um, and and. But I'm assuming for you, the minute you started rapping, you were, it, there was just no way for it not to be political. I mean, how do you feel about the genre itself, though? When hip-hop started out, and you kind of want to avoid saying that hip-hop used to be conscious. and hip-hop, It's kind of like the back-in-my-day phenomenon. Mm-hmm. We always remember the good parts about how we were righteous and kids today are messing everything up. From the beginning, there were people talking about gold and materialism in hip-hop as well as people talking about consciousness in hip-hop. What was rare about hip-hop was that, you know, hip-hop is really a child of the civil rights movement in terms of the musical traditions of America. So many of us felt, (laughs) I guess we still do, many of us felt, especially though at that time, that black people, Latino people, just did not have a voice in general, okay? So... When we have a black president, was that a joke for you guys? In black communities, that used to be a joke. It used to be like, yeah, if there's a black president, ah, anybody? But yeah, so, you know, a black president, there were a lot of areas where we just didn't feel like we were, you know, Tiger Woods wasn't even playing golf yet. You know, if you can think back to that time, my kids will never even understand what it was like in that point. So hip hop back in its origins, back in the 70s, like after 73, 74 is when it really started to get popular, was an amazing opportunity for a black person to be heard. So I think inherently it was political in that sense. It was just political. It was a big deal just to hear black people uncensored speaking for themselves. Does that, does that make sense? Now, somewhere between that time and this time, it became this kind of meme or this, you know, this idea that um, rap is your ticket. Like, if you get a record deal, you made it, right? And it's funny, because when I had my offer from Def Jam, I was reading, and I was, I, I had some legal consulting, and I realized for me to come to Harvard and go to Trinity College, I, I had a more, the, the probability of me succeeding was higher than even with this rare record deal. For a lot of kids, just to get the record deal is like, wow, you know what I mean? But I didn't want to stay in the projects and rap about be- having money I didn't have. I wanted to like come to New England and ended up here. But um, somewhere between that period and now, it became like this idea that if you get signed, if, you, if you're a rapper, right, which didn't happen with folk artists. So if I say I'm a folk artist, they're not expecting bling and, oh, you made it out the hood, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? But rap, for me at least, it was about like public enemy, mm. dead prez coming up to you. It was this inherently political thing. It now means something completely different to kids coming up, just like the phrase a black president means something completely different now. So now... It's kind of like if you know you can use it for financial gain, it is a really interesting predicament. It's kind of similar to what the Dixie Chicks went through 
But it's kind of like before it was like, wow, I can say something that's going to affect the way my people are portrayed. Now it's kind of like, wow, I can make money and leave my people. (laughs) And that might last longer than me being one of the first black people to say something inherently political. Now, obviously for me, it always was inherently political because I was just naive. I was just raised to think when you said something that inspired someone or spoke against injustice, it's like the snare hit and the beat. You know, when you say a rhyme right on the snare and the timing is right, that's what makes powerful music. So to me, that message always was powerful. And I think what we're talking about largely is commodification. We're talking about popular music. I think for people who aren't dealing with that record deal issue and the popular radio issue and popular notions of what hip-hop is, it's always going to be political. Always. At the International Hip-Hop Festival, if you guys come in April, we have artists from around the world who, it's a whole nother story, but hip-hop is totally political and nothing else to them, and they do a lot of good work in South America and Africa using hip-hop culture. But I think for the Dixie Chicks, like I was, I was telling Colin earlier, you know, if getting attacked by certain politicians didn't get all, garner all that attention, then they would have gone into obscurity, you know? They could have been suppressed. But just like happened with NWA, when the FBI started attacking them publicly and someone found out, it was the best thing that ever happened for their career. But if the FBI hadn't attacked them publicly, then um, maybe that wouldn't have happened. So if, and, you want to, if you're going to get persecuted, get persecuted big. And I, <laughs> think, get persecuted out of, out and of I think they learned from that, Colin. Yeah. I, keep in mind, I'm a child of like Black Panther and a SNCC person, right? But there was COINTELPRO, and maybe the FBI learned from that. And maybe it's not unintentional that a lot of these kids that get a, both get attacked like NWA was for speaking out against police brutality and such, but they don't get attacked publicly. And I think that's part of what we're seeing right now without even knowing it. So we'll take a little break, and we'll be right back. Come gather around people wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Songs can change the way we act. Since MacArthur Park, instances of people leaving cakes out in the rain have declined dramatically. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with huge amounts of help from our friends at Event Resources, not to mention Sally Kaplan. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Dylan. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing If I Had a Baster, I'd Baste in the Morning, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, all about gastromusicology. Don't ask. And now, back to Colin. 
I want to just uh, switch genres for a second, although I think a lot of what you're saying self-suffice goes back to what Neely was saying at the very beginning, which is music is always political. You know, there's always some political element to all of music. But I want to ask you, why did you write a choral piece uh, about the Bill of Rights? There was a particular moment, right? There was a a particular inspiration. In the first place, it's not about the Bill of Rights. It is the Bill of Rights. It is the Bill of Rights, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, here's what the Fourth Amendment says. Um, The right of the people to be secure in their persons houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Everybody has their opinions about the Supreme Court, but I have to tell you something that they did right Recently, and it's because of the Fourth Amendment. They do not allow the police to put a detection device on your car to track where your car is unless they have a warrant to do it. And let's hear it for the Supremes because that was really the right decision. Uh, you have to have a warrant to do stuff like that. You should be secure in your persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Although I feel like the fact that we're grateful that they can't put the device on our car, I think we've moved the bar somehow that I'm grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like they shouldn't even be allowed to think about doing that. Yeah, but, but they think about it all the time. They think about these things all the time. All right. But anyway. I want to hear, just, we don't have a, a lot of time to play. I would love to play the entire <laughs> choral piece, but just so you get kind of a sense of what it sounds like when the Fourth Amendment is set to music. We could have a performance of the whole thing right here for Watkinson School. Let's do it. Let's do That's it. on YouTube, by yes. the way. Yes. You like that idea? Share yeah. the link. It's on YouTube. It's on, yeah. Go, check it out on SoundCloud. All right. So those of you who have questions, uh, stick your hands up. Uh, and uh, he heard this, that, that she's making it easy for you, Jenny. Yes. Well, this discussion about um, not being able to make it if you're a political folk singer, you know, the Weavers were at the top of the sh- charts. Bob Dylan was at the top of the charts. People, Peter, Peter, Paul, and Mary were at the top of the sh- charts. So what the happened between then and now, and why is it 
that that seems to be the case now, but it wasn't the case back in my day, in the, in the day. Okay, well, I, I'm sure Lara has an answer. I mean, Neely wants question. to go first. Maybe yeah. everybody has an answer. Very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, these things change. And this is, you know, in, in the 19th century, it would also, there were big changes on this score. Whether music is entertainment or it ha- is food for thought or whether it actually carries a message or whether it is neutral, all these things are very, very important. It goes up and down. So my, you're absolutely correct, of course, and your examples are very good ones, but all that means is the worm will turn and it'll, it'll all be very popular again. We just have to wait. <laughs> Laura, you might have a different answer. Um, I'm wondering what the expression the worm will turn is about. I've never heard that expression before. I think Neely is right um, that some of it is is cultural taste. Um, I also think partly, well, a couple things. One, it depends on uh, how you define it. right? So I joked and said it's one half of 1% of the music market. I still consider... James Taylor, a folk artist, right? And he would move the bar from a half a percent, you know, further up. And probably lots of other artists that, you know, traditional um, people who think about folk music in in a very narrow traditional band might not consider as as part of the genre. I I see a lot of the contemporary singer-songwriters who are also doing social justice stuff and other stuff as folk musicians. And there are certainly people who look at me and and I have been accused of being, quote-unquote, not folk enough, um, which I don't agree with, but, you know. So I, I do think that it will come back around. I feel, as someone who's participating in it from the guitar side, I feel the pendulum swinging back. Uh, and I feel really optimistic about that. I think there's a hunger for that kind of connection, um, not just in folk music, but also in other kind of genres. I think that um, we sort of let it go for a little while and now know what it was, w- how important the glue is that, that it was serving then. And, I, I, you know, I want to hear what you have to say about this too, but before, I mean, I think it's also, also important to stress that, as Lara said at the beginning of this conversation, a lot of that messaging went someplace slightly different. So REM is full of the... REM is like the Weavers, you know? I mean, in a way. I mean, in terms of what, what that band had to say, the messages, those kinds of messages are coming in different places. Maybe musical tastes also changed a little bit. But it's like, if you look at what's popular at any moment, a certain percentage of it, has some kind of social or political message. I mean, you could argue that Lady Gaga has a pretty strong social message about sexual identity, about accepting who you are. Um, you know, that whatever's popular at a given moment maybe is going to, some portion of it, some percentage of it is going to go political. What were you going to say? Um, I, timing and purpose. So one, um, uh, one of my friends, Immortal Technique, is another rapper who you should check out in, in terms of conscious stuff. But when Immortal Technique um, first dropped his album, Revolutionary 1 and then 2, he's now like a mainstay, but he never needed a major label, and he's also turned down a lot of major labels. But he was able to be popular because of what was happening in Iraq at that time. The popular discourse was on what's going on. We're scared to say anything against the government. Same, Same time as the Dixie Chicks, pretty much. And so... People were looking for that. People were like, there's no rappers talking about this. The major labels aren't talking about this. And it took them off of the major label focus for a second. He capitalized on that. And I mean that in in the most positive way. I don't think it's negative to make money, capitalize, do your thing with support, right? So he capitalized on on the popular attention. And I've seen a number of rappers, even BET, which normally 
last year I would have thought of BT as like corny and coonery is two words that come to mind. But their last award show, they awarded Dougie Fresh. He was spitting conscious rhymes. They put their hands up for Mike Brown. They had a lot of rappers who aren't even signed on their show because they knew we can't do the regular thing right now. It's not going to be acceptable. So part of that's timing. The other part is purpose. And real quick, I'll say that when I've been down in, in Mississippi, you know, speaking with some of the veterans of the civil rights movement, it's very frustrating. It's hard for me to talk to people who are in the civil rights movement for too long because most of the ones who I talk to, and again, this is a generalization, but most of the ones who I talk to hate popularity, fame, being on the top of the charts. That's not what it's about for them, right? So when you have people who are literally killing, like people die, there's mafia involvement in the industry. We all know that. So people are literally killing to, you know, have their artists at the top of the charts. And people who are, in terms of, you know, human rights and peace and nonviolence, are not going to be killing to have the number one rap album. You know, they're going to be trying to get their kids to Watkinson, you know, and stuff like that. So the purpose is part of it. And that's one of the things I struggle with every day. I want to speak for all of my fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and their friends whose stories our kids in my generation really do not know. And it's because they're so humble and hate the fame, but the fame is, the radio is where their stories are being mistold. So it's, it's a hard one. Herbert Brun used to say, if I su succeed, I fail. <laughs> These people are incredibly brave. They are incredibly brave not only in terms of what they're willing to express in their music, but they're about to do something even braver, at least two of them are. Uh, Lara and Kaim had not met before tonight. But they've, I guess they've been emailing. I don't know how else you've been doing this, but they've been trying to figure out if they could perform together somehow. This is rehearsal. That's rehearsal right there. You're seeing rehearsal. So have you got it? I think you're going to know this one, especially you. <laughs> this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, Shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let's try that again. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Where we go? Let's go. A lot of us are in France right now, so let's go all around the world. Here we go. All around the world, I'm gonna let it shine. All around the world, I'm gonna let it shine. All around the world, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All right, where are we gonna go now? This little song of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little song of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little song of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Kaim, where are we going now? 
This microphone is mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This microphone is mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This microphone is mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Spit these rhymes, spit these rhymes, spit these rhymes. Check it. People always ask, what are you? Where you from? They can't wait to tight cast us in the palace of slum. You want to know about the room of my mama apartment? What direction it facing? If it got a carpet? You want to know about the bricks, the inner city politics, or how I was conceived, what my mother and father did? Or you want to learn about the egg and the germ, evolution, regeneration, genetic manipulation, molecules, electrons, subatomic particles, leptons. See, this is where I think humanity stepped wrong. Take a perspective and then clean it with intellects, making subjects out of other people and claim with objectives. The probabilities and statistics are dangerous tools more than a time bomb placed in the brain of a fool. Every thought could be rethought in a way that is new. It's up to you. Now what your mind and your body came through. I'm on NPR and it's the most improbable Jew. The most improbable things could take place and it's true. Now everybody got a light that's within you and you would not know without the luminescence. I mean the translucence. I mean the transducence. I'm not a neuroscientist. I just say stupid things. Notice I censored it. It could have rhymed with something different, but I'm trying to make a ligament. I meant filament. I meant filament. You know why I meant filament? Why? Because this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. One more, here we go. This is the light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. What you gonna do? This little light of mine. Come on. I'm gonna let it shine. What you gonna do? This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Yeah! I just want to thank this amazing panel. Neely Bruce. Kaim, self-suffice the rap poet. Lara Herskovich. Colin McEnroe, let's give it up, y'all.